Well, a new report is out today. It is called BC Seniors Falling Further Behind. It takes a look at the financial challenges facing BC seniors. And joining us to talk more about what is in this report is Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Can you tell us a little bit, first all, first off, what were you looking at as far as finances and, and financial challenges when it comes to BC seniors? Well, the first thing we looked at is what are what are the incomes of seniors in the province? And I think uh, it was very surprising to find that basically almost half, uh, currently it's about 45% of BC seniors, live on an income that's less than minimum wage. So, you know, that has to sink in a bit. That's that's almost half of our seniors are living on an income that is less than minimum wage, and about 6% of the labor force overall uh, lives on minimum wage. And when you look at the median income, so that means half of the people are below that amount and half of them are above it, the median income for a senior in British Columbia is just over uh, about thirty, just over thirty thousand dollars a year. And when we look at the prime working age, the thirty-five to fifty-five year olds in the province, it's a sixty-six percent higher median income. It's over fifty thousand. And so, you know, seniors uh, clearly are struggling with the same expenses around food. The people who rent have the same rental challenges and all of the other costs uh, that we're struggling with. And they're struggling with uh, paying for those costs on significantly lower incomes than most of the rest of us. And when we look at seniors' incomes, though, do we not also look at a senior making an income isn't the same as, say, somebody who's 40 and making an income if, if you are retired, perhaps, and, and you have savings or retirement plan? Are you looking at, at kind of the whole financial picture of seniors or are these seniors that, that are dependent on whatever income they're still making for the things that you just mentioned, housing and for the, the things that, that people need? Well, the incomes we're looking at, those are their total income. So any investment income they're getting, any private pension income getting, that's all included in this, uh, uh, you know, less than minimum wage income. Um, the fact is, uh, you know, for the story for about half of the seniors in British Columbia is they don't actually have a lot of additional income beyond their government pensions. Uh, clearly, uh, they have some uh, income beyond their, their pension income, the CPP and the OAS and the GIS, uh, but not a lot more. And 25% of seniors in this province are living on less than $21,000 uh, a year. They really only have their government pensions to, to depend on. And I think the other thing we have to recognize is that when you're older, it could be argued, you know, we, I'm, I don't have kids anymore, and oftentimes the mortgage is paid off, not for the 20% of seniors who rent, however, um, but there are other costs. So we don't have any program in B.C. Uh, that has these extended health benefits. So if I'm this senior on a minimum wage income, uh, and I, I am paying totally out of my own pocket, the total cost for my dental care. If I need uh, a walker, a raised toilet seat, uh, um, eyeglasses, hearing aids, I've got to pay the total cost of that myself. And what is clear uh, is that for the majority of BC seniors that don't have a private benefit plan, uh, they're going without a lot of these things that they need. 
And and that's uh, got to be quite alarming when you talk about things like that. Uh, and I know it's it's mentioned in the report, things like hearing aids or eyeglasses or, as you mentioned, walkers uh, and things. And, and, and that must be an alarming, or it sounds like an alarming number that so many are going without. It, it is alarming. And I think the challenge with the poverty amongst seniors is it is less visible. Um, so what you're seeing are a lot of seniors who are living in their one-bedroom apartments or uh, the house that's you know, not getting the repairs it needs because they can't afford the repairs. Um, and they're quietly going on about their lives, and we're not realizing uh, they need hearing aids and can't afford them. Uh, they need a new pair of eyeglasses and they can't afford them. Um, they need some equipment in the house and they can't afford it. And before you know it, we're going to find that somebody who's getting on in years, they're into their mid and late 80s, is going, I just can't afford to live independently anymore, and I'm going to move into long-term care because it's less expensive for me to go there than to try and stay in my own home, pay this exorbitant rate we charge people for their publicly subsidized home support, um, and all of the other costs that get covered when I'm in long-term care, And the data for British Columbia do support that we've got a lot of low-care needs seniors living in long-term care. Now, there'll be a variety of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is going to be clearly the economics for the person is compelling to move into long-term care, although the economics for the taxpayer would be more compelling to support them in the community. Right, and also, and this isn't a knock at all against long-term care, but I can't imagine anybody going into, it doesn't seem like that should be the option or that would be anybody's preferred option if you could choose to stay at home with maybe some support at home. If you didn't need to be in long-term care, uh, going there only because of finances seems uh, like absolutely not the right thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, long t- there are always going to be people who are going to need long-term care, and there are going to be people who, you know, on balance are going to actually prefer that to living in their own home uh, at a certain point uh, in the aging process for them. That's not the majority. The majority of people do want to live at home. And as we age, uh, we're going to need some support to do that. And we think there's more support out there, uh, more affordable support than there really is. Uh, I have talked before about this uh, daily rate we charge for home support, but, you know, to reemphasize that a senior who's living on $28,000 a year, so that's well below minimum wage, actually. Minimum wage is about $33,000 a year. A person living on $28,000 a year who needs just a -a 45-minute-a-day visit from home support to get them up in the morning and get them their medications, we are going to charge that person $8,800 a year of their $28,000 income for that 45-minute daily visit of home support. That alone is what is driving some people into long-term care. And like you said, not good for, not only not good for the senior, but also not good for taxpayers or tax dollars as far as how much it's costing us. That's true. You know, it costs about $75,000 a year to keep somebody in long-term care. The bulk of that comes from the government. Now, because everybody in long-term care does contribute, they pay proportionate to their income, uh, um, uh, the cost of care up to a certain threshold. But the majority of that $78,000, particularly for lower-income and modest-income seniors, that's being paid for by government. And we would be far further ahead 
to be supporting people. So if they're renters, we have to support them with their rent and obviously with their home support. If they're homeowners, we need to support them with their uh, costs related to their home support services and their other health care needs. Uh, the report also makes a number of recommendations and uh, kind of going off what you just said there. What, what do you think are the top recommendations or what could be done um, even in the short term or maybe not even in the short term? What do you think needs to be done then to address this? I think the two biggest issues, uh, well, there's probably three of the biggest issues that stand out. Um, without a doubt, we have got to um, basically uh, redesign the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters Safer Program. Um, it is uh, in no way, shape, or form delivering on the principle of 30% of income for rent. You know, a, a safer recipient living on a paying an average rent in Vancouver is paying over 60% of their income on rent. We we really have to look at that. The other thing we have to do is deal with this uh, daily rate for home support. Uh, we are one of the provinces that char- all provinces do not charge for it, particularly Alberta and Ontario don't charge for their home support. We do. Some provinces also have some fee. We have the highest. We have to get rid of that. And then the other thing is we have to have some kind of extended benefit program for seniors. Most other provinces have some. So this is around dental care, which may uh, event- may actually be uh, addressed in the federal program. I've encouraged the province to coordinate with the federal government on a dental program. But it's the things like the hearing aids and the eyeglasses and the equipment that you need in home. Sometimes it's simple things. And, you know, if you've got a good income, you don't think about the cost of, you know, $150 for a raised toilet seat or, you know, it's going to cost me four or $500 to get grab bars and get them installed in the shower so I don't fall. But when your income is so low, $24,000, $25,000 a year, these costs start to become prohibitive. So we need that sort of uh, extended benefit type program, and it can be a premium people pay based on their income, um, that's going to allow seniors to receive in the community, commensurate with their income, the same kind of benefit they would receive in long-term care and get away from this financial incentive uh, to, uh, to move into long-term care. So something like a um, like a Pacific Blue Cross or something like a, an insurance program that would cover those things. Yes, I've often thought about um, and, and have voiced an opinion that you know if we looked at some kind of uh, program, actually for all British Columbians, arguably not just seniors, but but my focus is seniors. Uh, that had a premium that you paid that was on a sliding scale relative to your income. And what that would mean is that those uh, who are unable to afford premiums wouldn't pay them, and those who were able to afford premiums would. Um, we have other programs. That is, that is a version of how our uh, pharmacare program works, for example, how we, we, we are expecting people to pay up to 3% of their income for their medications. So the more income you pay, the, the, the more you pay. The less income you have, the less you pay. And I think we could take that kind of approach to funding a core suite of extended health benefits. Most of the provinces and territories have some of the extended health benefits covered. Uh, British Columbia actually has the lowest coverage uh, when you look across the country. 
Hmm, I, I did not realize that. Um, one other point in the recommendations has to do with a, a bus pass. And I think people would, would think of Handy Dart perhaps as a service that a lot of seniors or some seniors would use. But this would be then an even more subsidized bus pass then for seniors province-wide? Yes, the, the, the recommendation currently, uh, seniors who get the Guaranteed Income Supplement, the GIS, uh, which are, are really low-income seniors, so those are folks whose incomes are less than 26000 a year, um, they do get this annual $45 a year bus pass, and that's great. It doesn't cover Handy Dart, however. So every Handy Dart round trip is about $5.50, I think, in the lower mainland. So if you're making three trips a week, you know, that's starting to add up on Handy Dart. So it could be folded into the annual bus pass that we give for people on GIS. And then I think it's worth looking at, do we want a, a provincial bus pass that seniors can access? Because right now every jurisdiction is different and some have seniors discounts and some don't. And again, it would be a uh, you know what you pay uh, based on your income because right now, if you're on the GIS, you get the forty-five dollar a year bus pass. If your income is one dollar over the threshold, so you you don't get GIS, you go from forty-five dollars uh, a year to eight hundred dollars a year for the bus pass in your local jurisdiction on average. Um, so we sort of we could smooth that out a bit, um, and maybe also uh, encourage seniors to start using transit earlier uh, before they've stopped driving, which I think would facilitate their ease of using it uh, when they no longer want to drive. All right. Well, very interesting findings and recommendations. We'll leave it there for today. But Isabel McKenzie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. We are talking now about short-term rentals and specifically what is happening on the Sunshine Coast in Seashelt. That community moving to restrict some short-term rental properties. And while there have been some concerns raised from people in the tourism sector, these are new bylaws that will come into effect in January. The district municipality or the municipality saying this was in in response to many complaints that had come in from the community and this should help address that. Well, joining us to talk more about this is the mayor of Seashelt, Darnelda Seegers. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for the opportunity. I know there's been some uh, some confusion, I think, about what exactly this will mean for short-term rentals going forward. So what specifically uh, is being uh, is being uh, kind of restricted when it comes to short-term rentals in Seashells? Right. There have, has been a lot of confusion out in the community due to some of the information that's been getting out. We are not looking to limit the uh, short-term rentals where the owner is on site. We're not going to be limiting those at all. What we are looking at limiting is the secondary residences where the owner is not on site. It's like a secondary residence, secondary dwelling for them. Those we are looking to limit. And we actually passed the bylaw last night. The bylaw passed last night with allowing at this point 15 only of the secondary residences. All right. So, and when you say the owner not on site, does that mean the owner doesn't live in Seashell or the owner doesn't live in that particular house? Could they be, could they, if, what if they lived, say, next door? Yes. If, if they do not live in that house, it is not their primary residence. Okay. And, and what was the reasoning given for that, that, that that particular type of short-term rental would be capped? Okay. So the, the community actually came out loud and clear and said they didn't want any 
of the large uh, short-term rentals in Seashout. And we felt that that was too far to go. We need, we need to have some. We don't have, as uh, Sunshine Coast Tourism has said, we don't have a lot of hotel rooms here currently. So we do need to provide accommodation for tourists who want to come here. But we, it had to, we had to kind of find that balance, that you know, balancing community feel and neighborhood fit. The ones that we get the complaints about are the unhosted or un, you know, the non-residential properties. Those are the ones that are giving us the difficulty, the ones where the owner does not live on site. Right. And what are the complaints? Um, on lots of partying, um, always lot, lots of people coming, up to 16 people in a house, typically in some of them. Uh, and it varies. But making sure that, you know, noise and garbage and, you know, people can feel safe in their own neighbourhood. They live there. They want to be able to enjoy the summer as well and not have continual revolving doors next door to them with people coming in um, and partying. Right. Okay. So how did you come up then with the number that there would be 15 of these allowed? Well, it, we don't actually know how many are in the District of Seashot. It's difficult to get uh, stats. So we know that there are a lot, lots of them in the District of Seashot that are not currently licensed. Um, if we look at any of the numbers that we get from Airbnb or VRBO or any of the short-term rental platforms, we know that we don't have all of them licensed. So it was looking at what is out there in the community that we could kind of guess at. And when this goes into effect at the beginning of January, we will have the short-term rental operators applying. That information will go to staff and we'll be coming back to council we will have a new council at that point in the District of Seashell, and there is also the opportunity at that point, if they want to revise those numbers, they can. Right, because if you, so with the number 15, what was the reasoning given then that this would be, that they would be capped at 15 for these whole uh, whole house or, or rentals where the owner's not on site? And if the reason being because there's parties and there are neighborhood complaints, then why why isn't it shutting them down based on complaints rather than, but because what if there are, are ones in that 15 that are the problem homes? Right, so the problem was that we didn't actually have any bylaws in place that dealt with that. And the bylaw that we, we basically had a, a business license bylaw and that was it. We had nothing else around short-term rentals. So this is our, actually our first opportunity to put something in place that is potentially enforceable. And doesn't Airbnb, though, have a, a rule as well? Don't they actually kind of police parties and have a rule against their short-term rental platform being used for parties? Uh, could be, but uh, they don't work with the district of All right. All right. Um, and, and as far as then the tourism concerns, uh, with some tourism operators concerned that this is going to make it more difficult for people to find places to rent and to come and spend their time in, in Seashell, what do you say to those concerns? At this point, we don't know how many of those uh, units are on the market in Seashell, and that will be something we'll have to revisit come January. So with people then, even with people having to have a business license, you're still not clear on how many people actually have these types of rentals? No, we, have, we are not clear on that number. And, and again, because even, even though the requirement is the business license, there are a lot of people that are, are operating without that? Yes. We, I, I think it's something like 50 to 60% of the short-term rentals that we know are out in the area actually have business licenses. So... And we don't currently have 
the way to determine who does not have a license because we don't have the data on where they exist. That's also part of this whole piece. We will be uh, getting access to software that will actually identify for us where they are so that we can follow up and do the enforcement as well. Right. Okay. Uh, because I think that's what some other places have done. They've actually gone on the, the websites and the platforms and looked for the business license number or, or gone through and tried to figure out who has a mm-hmm. business license and who, does, who doesn't. Yes, there is, a, there is a piece of software out there right now that will actually do that scraping for us. They will go to the websites and they can actually provide us with the information as to who is using their property as a short-term rental. Right. But so wouldn't that give you the information then that, that you're lacking right now in, that, in not knowing? That's also part of the, enforce, the, the whole bylaw. We will be investing in that software and that will tie into bylaw and enforcement. All right. Um, how do you choose then the 15 that would be exempt or the 15 licenses that will be still allowed under this new bylaw of the standalone rentals? How do you choose which 15 get the licenses? Some of that will still be need, need to be worked out. I mean, we will be looking at things like parking requirements. Do they have sufficient parking on site for people to be there? Um, are they dealing properly with the garbage? Uh, because we have bears up here. We have bears on lots of wildlife. So it's, it's those kinds of things as well. Who do they have to support them? Do they have uh, proper support so that they can respond if there are issues? All of those will play into who will actually get the license. All right. So it won't be like a lottery system. It will be actually a system where you, the best, what, what's considered the best suited place gets the license? Correct. And when you, and again, when you say, just to, to clarify that the owner has to be there, what if it's, say, a property with three or four cabins on it and the owner lives in one cabin, but so doesn't physically live in the other cabins, but is on the property? Does that count? That is not one of the 15. Those, those will apply, be able to get a license under the what you know the other two categories okay so if right so if they own the property they live on the property they have three or four cabins they will be able to apply for a license it will not reduce the or be be counted as one of the 15 and there's no cap on the other licenses no cap on the other licenses at all all right. And again, so this comes into place and this will be, so would people then in Seashell who are, are listening to this or who have rentals, would they, is the plan that they will start applying for these licenses now and then everything is set to roll in January? The, applica- the licenses will come into effect in January. So we will be over the next couple of months putting in the, you know, the proper forms and all of that sort of thing. So if they are licensed, I mean, they will automatically come forward and renew their license in January anyway. Uh, those who aren't licensed will probably want to find out what the requirements are and start getting uh, that paperwork and stuff together. All right. Is this is this also pointing at, or does this show that there is an issue as far as rental accommodation and the need for it, in that there is such um, such a dependence on personal rentals or short-term rentals, uh, people putting up their own property on these websites and these platforms uh, as opposed to, say, hotels? So we, we do have a shortage of rentals on the Sunshine Coast, but I, I don't think we're unique in that. I think that is something that's showing up, you know, all, all across BC and Canada. Uh, so will this, I think what you're asking is, will this increase the um, number of long-term rentals? I think we'll probably see some of them convert to long-term rentals, but people will have to look at that themselves and determine whether or not they want a long-term rental or if they want to leave it vacant or potentially sell it. Right. And uh, there's no empty homes tax in Sea Shelter, is there? 
there is no speculation tax in Shop. Right. No, and more, my question was more on, on is there a lack of hotel rooms in that there's such a dependency on private rentals? Is that because there just aren't enough hotel rooms for what is a destination for so many people? Well, there's a, there's a couple of pieces to that. One is uh, Sunshine Coast Tourism has done a great job in marketing Seashell to the world. And we get a lot of people coming to the Sunshine Coast for, you know, the beautiful environment that we live in. Uh, but the other piece is um, the hotel industry has told us in the past that until we actually put bylaws in place to monitor and enforce, you know, the bylaws around short-term rentals, they will not even consider coming here and building hotel rooms. So we're hoping that once we get something like this in place, that we will then have interest from hotels to come and build in Seashell. All right. So it's very interesting, and it'll be interesting to see how things unfold in uh, when the, the bylaw comes into place in January. Uh, Mayor Seegers, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Thank you very much. We are talking travel, and as expected, we talked about this yesterday, but again, government sources and different sources saying that there were going to be changes as far as rules and regulations with COVID in this country. We now know that the Prime Minister, according to two senior government sources, the Prime Minister has agreed to let a Cabinet order enforcing mandatory COVID-19 vaccination requirements at the Canadian border to expire on September 30th. And again, that is according to two senior government sources. However, we're still waiting for word on whether or not passengers on trains and airplanes will still be required to wear face masks. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Incorporated, also a travel insurance expert. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How big of an impact do you think will it be that Canada is going to uh, get rid of that requirement that people have proof of vaccination to cross the border into Canada? I think it's incredibly significant. Leads me to the next question, which is what is the U.S. going to do? Because at this point, that's still a requirement to go into the U.S. So I'm watching closely to see if there'll be any reciprocation here or an announcement simultaneously. Anyway, the bottom line, though, is Think about all the people who haven't traveled in the last couple of years because they either weren't vaccinated, chose to not want to fill out an arrive can, didn't want random testing. Now it's all going to be gone as of September 30th. So I think there will be a massive surge in travel. Hmm. Uh, do, does this mean the end, though, of the arrive can app? It really does. It says optional. And I suspect what they say by that is you no longer need it to show that you had a negative PCR or, or uh, antigen test. You no longer need it to show that you have been vaccinated. So what's its purpose? I suspect the only purpose would be, do you have a declaration to make so that it would be something that you could use and bypass lines? Maybe they see some value in that, but it has no purpose anymore. And why would anybody want to opt for it if they could avoid doing it? Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because it was unclear if that it just was the wording wasn't saying that the Arrive Can app now is, is kind of a thing of the past. But, but you're right. So if you're using it, I don't know, maybe if you're somebody that doesn't have Nexus or, or doesn't have anything else that would help you get through the lineup, if that does that, it would maybe be something that could be beneficial. Exactly. Exactly what I'm thinking. But I suspect that for the masses, they are not going to want to get involved with having to do an arrive can dock, especially people at border cities who want to just come over for an afternoon. This is where I think the volumes are going to just absolutely skyrocket. 
there were so many people that said, what's the point of me going over for half a day? I've got to do the arrive can. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Now that's going to be out of the picture. So you know what? They're going to flock for sure and head over. Yeah, and I would think too, and we, we talked about this briefly yesterday, that not only the arrive can, because I mean, really, if, unless it's you're one of the people that it's there was a glitch or something, it wasn't all that onerous to do it, but I understand, and I'm certainly one of the people that is happy to see it go, but it was also the random testing and the inconvenience if you happen to be chosen to get the random test, even like you say, if you were going over for half a day or, or going to get gas or something. Exactly. And, you know, people that did have COVID just by a home antigen test and didn't go out and get a positive or should say a test through a pharmacy or something like that got picked randomly and it still showed they had COVID. They had to quarantine for 14 days. So another hesitation. I can't afford to be off work 14 days. So as long as there was random testing testing and they ran the risk of getting stopped, that would be a problem also. That's going to be gone as of September 30th. Does this change things as well as far as travel insurance in that if you're not exactly like you just said, you're not going to run the risk of of not being able to get on an airplane or, or being stuck somewhere, being told to isolate? Does it change then insurance requirements? It's a great question. And this literally it's unfolding as we speak. So insurers have not addressed now what they're going to do with the unvaccinated, because prior to that, you had to have two boosters and actually whatever your province suggested you have on top of it to have full coverage for COVID. Now, I don't know how they're going to address this. And I suspect in the next few days, we're going to have an answer as to what the insurance company's position is going to be on this. Uh, Could it be something that there would be a different rate depending on whether or not you've been vaccinated against COVID? Absolutely. And maybe a cap on the amount of expenses like the old days where you had to buy a rider if you wanted to be covered for COVID. And even then it would only be covered up to a half a million as opposed to five million in the contract. So we we really uh, are going to have to follow this and see exactly how they address it. Because the other thing is you're sitting on a plane now and you just are not sure who's sitting next to you before you knew everybody was vaccinated. You didn't have a concern. Now you don't know. So it's a big question mark. And do you think that will have an impact then on people traveling? Like you said, there may have been some level of comfort traveling on planes. We are still waiting to to find out uh, about the mask policies on planes and trains and such. But but might that would other people then do you think that will be reluctant to travel? Absolutely. And I do think that's why they're going to keep the mask policy in place a little while longer just for that reason alone, that they don't need someone with COVID or someone unvaccinated being on a plane that could pass it on to 300 sitting in the seat. So I think without saying it, that's what they're doing is not stopping that restriction. That will be the final restriction left after that. We're back to pre-pandemic travel for the most part. Hmm. And and do you think then is that because we've not seen a lot much transmission at all on airplanes but do you think that's because everybody on the planes was vaccinated so even even if they were unknowingly positive weren't shedding as much virus weren't weren't passing it on to other people because even in airports where flying home i mean in the summertime being in in um the United States and in London. I mean, the joke was you'd be sitting around a a gate with hundreds of other people unmasked. And then to get on an Air Canada flight, suddenly when you walked through the, the, the door of the plane, you put a mask on, but still sat around with all the same people. So it, it seemed a little bit odd. It is. It really didn't make any sense, much like a lot of things during this entire pandemic. So in answer to your question, I mean, being on the plane with the mask, no, I don't think that's going to make a big difference one way or the other. And if you are going to get it, you're going to get it. So it's, it's not a question of continuing with masks or not.
Uh, is Canada late to the, the party then as far as we've been talking about how there are still rules or until 30th, I suppose, the fact that there are still these rules in Canada that many other countries have already dropped? We, we are one of the last with respect to a, a document such as ArriveCan. The requirement for proof of vaccine, U.S. and us are still in the running, but all the other countries internationally in Europe and everywhere else, they got rid of that before the summer onslaught of travel and quite frankly they had a big big busy summer and we were hampered by having it so we can't look back we can only look forward but it's the right thing to do at this point and what issues might there be then if the united states because i know we thought before as well that the border when it closed that we that we would be kind of on the same page with at least with the u.s and and opening the border up again Uh, what what issues does it create do you think if the u.s doesn't kind of follow suit or if there are these different rules in each country Well, I think the border travel will help now for people that can come into Canada without showing proof of vaccination, but the other way around, it won't. So I would think the mayors and the cities along the border in the U.S. side are going to start putting pressure on Homeland Security to suggest, guys, or President Biden, we have got to remove that restriction because now we have people going the other way to Canada with no implications, but they're not coming back into the U.S. to shop in our city. So I really think you are going to hear about a reciprocation or something announced soon where they remove that same uh, restriction. All right. Uh, Martin Firestone, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care. Well, this has been an interesting one to watch. Some people posting and talking about a robot that is delivering Pizza. Yes, the restaurant in a box is something that Pizza Hut is rolling out. And as of now, it's not all over the place, but it's been spotted in the West End. And it's a robot that can deliver pizzas, small pizzas, within one kilometer of the Pizza Hut. And this is the one on Robson Street. So is this the way of the future? We wanted to talk more about this. So joining us is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure, Joe. We have a runaway robot in Robson. I think that's just so funny. Yeah, who, who uh, would have who had on their bingo card? We would be talking about robots delivering pizzas, but here we are. I know. You know ben uh, Dooley, your producer, he, he, he texted me this. I mean, I was like, what? And then I had to sort of backtrack this, and I sort of thought, I better understand this a bit more because it's something that we, we as an industry really haven't thought about too much. We've been in the weeds on so many issues. And then, uh, so, you know, like you guys, I, I called Pizza Hut and had a little chat with him. It was quite cute. And it turns out that the technology of, of, of robotics and restaurants is really starting to emerge. So you've got robotics uh, for delivery. You've got robotics that do actual serving in the restaurant. And there's robotics and food preparation. So, um, and it's, it's, excuse me, it's taking a hold in really uh, cool areas like robotic food delivery on campuses, for example. So instead of flooding a restaurant, you would use your phone uh, on your app. You would order your food from the restaurant. The restaurant prepares a little. <laughs> I was watching a video. The little robot comes to the back of the restaurant. They load it in, and then it gets. And then off it goes, and it'll have a pre predetermined uh, meeting point for the customer. And the customer gets a code, unlocks the robot, and there's the food. It is just, and then I watched a video of these in Los Angeles are testing robot delivery, 
And they're so, I, I was laughing so much, Joe, because the robots were on the sidewalk together and one would pull over and let the other one go. And they sort of <laughs> wink at each other and off they would go. And they could go across, you know, through sidewalks and they would stop if they saw people. And so I thought, man, they're polite too. So it is a real thing. And they're testing it at uh, at Pizza Hut for two weeks to see what it's what the impact's going to be. And I mean, laughing about it, and it is if you, if people want to check out the video, it is you, you watch it and think, oh, what what am I watching? Is this actually this is a thing? And yes, like you said, they're they're testing it out. Is this something though? Do you think it will it will take off, or we're going to see more of this in the future? I, I actually really do. When I when I looked at this for the last, you, you gave me the big task today. So the last hour, I've been watching videos and. Absolutely. So with repetitive tasks in kitchens, um, like burger preparations and those sorts of things, uh, pizza preparations, that's good. Vending machines uh, can be customized. So there's vending machines now that you can um, order bread, you know, fresh baked bread, and, and do your own sort of uh, recipe, and it'll cook it. Um, or it'll prepare, um, vending will prepare foods, hot foods. And then you have the delivery side. So I think... You know, I thought the best thing I've read so far is that it doesn't replace humans. It actually assists humans, and it gives humans the ability to to perform higher-level tasks versus repetitive tasks. And in one case, one restaurant said, I can actually pay my staff more because, um, you know, I we are more efficient in our staff now. So the menial jobs uh, are being done by robotics, excuse me, and uh, and we have more money to pay our staff. It also saves, uh, someone did a study of a restaurant, and they determined that their, on average their staff were, were walking about 100 miles a month, serving back and forth between tables and menial tasks, like you know, bringing out the food and taking back empty dishes. So they got rid of that, and now they use their staff to develop more relationships and upselling opportunities for you know, the servers and their guests. So it, it's, it looks like it's going to have a good future. Right. I just when you were saying that, though, uh, not having to walk as much or do as much, I pictured that movie. I don't remember the name of it now, but it was in the future where everything had been taken over by robots and it was just people sitting in lounge chairs and uh, they they were just gigantic with no muscle mass because they hadn't done anything in years. Yeah, Yeah, true enough. Right. Yeah, I think um, the, the Pizza Hut manager told me that um, the, the robot, in his words, is very polite. Uh, and then I said, how's he in the sidewalks? And he said, well, they're just, they just understand that there's people, they can see it through their sensors, and there's, there's absolutely no problem. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. I'm sure that there'll be regulations coming in right, City Hall. But um, I, and, and obviously it's going to be for neighborhoods, so you're not going to see long-distance robots heading down the highway <laughs> delivering food yet. And the other one I saw, which was really cool, was a greeter. So you could go and have a robot, it's a, and this one is about $32,000. A lot of these are about ten to $15,000. But the greeter is is a robot standing fully upright, and you it'll say, hello, Joe, how are you, and what would you like to do? And it would say, you know, find a table or contact my guest or order some food for takeout. And as you wait, then it'll entertain you with jokes or songs or whatever. So. I had a robot make eye contact once at the airport in Tokyo, and I didn't like it. It was I felt he was, or she, what, yep. the robot, I felt it was trying to take over. Yeah, it's a bit creepy. They also, uh, airports, they have robotic luggage, I saw today, too, where you can just, you know, instead of carrying your luggage, you just, it just follows you to the airport. Uh, <laughs> so um, it's here to stay, for sure. <laughs> now, now, 
Yeah. There's about four restaurants in Vancouver that are actually using robotics. You can look it up online, but there's about four restaurants right now currently in Vancouver that are using robotics inside the restaurant for delivery. Right. And but do you think there are concerns with the ones that actually go out on the sidewalks that are delivering it like this one that goes, I think, within one kilometer of the location? Uh, would there be concerns about theft or vandalism? Well, I think it's probably like e-bike technology that if it gets disrupted, it just turns itself off. Or if you don't have the prop, you know, what I mean, I think there's a certain there's probably some technology around that will just kill it. And so and then once it once you kill it, you can't really do much with it because you need to have the operating codes for it. So the security in these things, I, I would have to be well thought out from a technolo- technology point of view. Right. Okay. Uh, you mentioned too, though, so in, in some cases, so if robots are doing these things that maybe people don't want to do so much and that frees up staff and, and then they can get paid more, but wouldn't it also lead to restaurants wouldn't need as many staff members? Yes. <clears throat> and right now, um, you know, we're not going to see this on mass. This is going to be, uh, you know, very sort of specialized thing. But, you know, right now in, in the, here we go again, the labor starved industry that we have right now, all industries of BC, uh, that's not a bad thing because we don't have enough staff anyways. So, um, but I think that, um, you know, there's, there's obviously some restaurants, their models, <laughs> there's a lot of restaurants, they have a lot of stairs. And so that's not going to work out too well. And the tables are close together, so that doesn't work out too well. These are, these are more sort of uh, ethnic-type restaurants. There's lots of room in the tables. They generally aren't have, they're on one floor. And, you know, you'll see it lends itself to sushi and Korean-type restaurants. Uh, I think it'd be pretty hard for the global group to be sort of doing robot delivery because that's all about the experience and, and, and an experience at your table. So I, it's going to be limited to a certain style of restaurant for sure. Right. And I wondered about that, too, with uh, getting customers buying in on it. And and I thought, too, because we haven't done it lately, but whenever we've done segments or talked about self-serve checkouts at grocery stores, there is a very, very uh, staunch group that is opposed to them. How dare you? I always go to the cashier. You're taking jobs away. I will never use a self-serve checkout. I am not in that group. I love self-serve checkouts. But how do you deal with customers then that maybe don't want robots taking over from humans? Well, I like self-serve checkout when there's something there that can actually help you check out because invariably <laughs> something doesn't work right. But um, I think that if it's done in, if it's done in, the, in the spirit of this is a functional, um, low humanoid type activity, uh, and, and, then, and then the higher human activity, uh, it brings in a more hospitality, more of the conversation, more of the, as I said, you know, directing and, and informing and selling. I think that people will, will do it, uh, will be fine with it. But I, again, it's, it's going to be in, in functional, more functional type restaurants, pizza, those kind of places, as opposed to, uh, you know, full service restaurants. I don't think we're going to see too many uh, robots in the high end restaurants in Vancouver. Right. So, <laughs> so more like the places where uh, maybe you're not going there for the full experience. You don't mind ordering off an iPad or even going to the counter to pick something yeah. up. You're, and, and it would be just fine if it's a robot handing it to you or, or somebody else. Well, yeah, and I think in, in those are sort of, I, I, I guess I call them functional sort of, I have to eat, so I'm going to go and get food. I don't really need to have the experience or do anything else. I just need to eat. So the campus thing is kind of cool because it said, you know, they continue to sort of work in the libraries or wherever they are, and the robot just ends up coming outside, and you meet the robot, get your food, and get back at it. So it's those, those occasions, I think, is going to be really well received for sure. All right. Interesting times. We're talking about the food delivering robots. Ian, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill.